So good, isn't it, uh, to know that that congregation is uh, thriving and is still 50% Hispanic, 50% gringo, <laughs> worshipping together in English and Spanish. And, uh, you know, that in itself is an amazing witness in our culture today. Uh, in fact, there's a lady who's paid by the YMCA, where we meet in Rochester, to open the building for our congregation on Sundays. And she's so impressed uh, by it um, that not only does she welcome people as they come in through the door, she's learned Spanish, some Spanish phrases, so she can welcome people in Spanish <laughs> as well. It's great. And how do they come to have a, a multicultural, uh, bilingual church there? Well, because Mary uh, and Patria are neighbors, and Mary invited her to come to church. It was as simple as that. Um, the fact is, you know, in the United States today, there is much more chance that your neighbor will be from a different nation or culture than even 10 years ago. That's certainly true in large cities like Boston, but it's becoming increasingly true in smaller cities like ours. Uh, for example, it's amazing to see the, uh, over the last few years, the Indonesian population in Summersworth uh, grow to become 17% of the total population there. And we are honored to have uh, Rauda Rachel and her family as part of our congregation there. That's why we also sang in Indonesian this morning. Um, and uh, she's done so much to promote the Indonesian culture. Uh, and it was just a blessing to baptize her daughter, Abby, last year. We're also blessed to have um, people from African nations in our church, uh, like Peter uh, Sheme, Evan and Tracy, um, Funzo and Bola, Tinu, Tolu, and, uh, and others of their family. And uh, you may know that uh, Funzo and Bola came here from Nigeria, uh, where there are more Christians in Nigeria than there are people in Great Britain. Yeah. And uh, some of you may know that they started the church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, that was called Chapel of Hope for All Nations. And Funzo was pastoring that for eight years before moving to the area uh, where he met Bill Cole, who invited him to his community group. And now we're blessed to have them in our Portsmouth congregation. Uh, and in fact, uh, Funzo will be speaking here next Sunday morning. Now, of course, we have other nationalities in our church, as you probably realize. Uh, but I mentioned those particular people because they represent what is called the global south. Uh, that is Latin America, uh, much of Asia and Africa, and is now the new center for Christianity in the world today. So if I can show you this map from Gordon Conwell College, 100 years ago, 80% of Christians in the world lived in North America and Europe, and 20% in the global south. 
And today, that statistic has virtually flipped with nearly 70% in the global south. And one of the interesting changes that's taking place today is that while the church in America has been declining over the past few decades, and particularly just the last few years, uh, many of the new immigrants coming into the country are coming from places where Christianity is flourishing and growing dramatically. And so according to Christian researchers in this country, it may well be those immigrants who will revitalize the church in America. It also means your neighbor or work colleague or teammate might not only be from another culture, but may be a Christian looking for a church to call home. Now, that doesn't mean that the existing churches will automatically become diverse. Um, because while there may be increasing diversity in our workplaces and schools and colleges, that is not the case in many churches, uh, which is sad. But it is understandable, because when people have a choice, they tend to gather with others from their own culture. Right? I mean, it's natural to want to surround yourself with people who look like you, talk like you, you know, people who get you. Uh, people who have the same preferences in music and food and even worship. It's why most churches here tend to be homogenous or mono-ethnic. So we have black churches and white churches. We have Korean churches and Brazilian churches and so on. People naturally gravitate to others who are like them. So trying to build a multicultural or multi-ethnic church is a challenge because it goes against the grain. And it takes a lot of effort and intentionality. And it can be uncomfortable. And yet I think it's something that we as a church should be praying for and striving to become. To be a church where in a sense all cultures are honored and invited to bring their gifts. And where we become this uh, diverse tapestry of cultures that are being kind of woven together into one family. Now, that may not be possible here uh, because the communities we live in are not that diverse, uh, at least not yet. And we're a long way from being a truly multicultural church. But I still think it's something we should be seeking to grow in. I thank God personally for every nationality, every culture, uh, every ethnicity that is represented in our church. We are blessed. And may God make it even more so. But why? Why would I say that? Three reasons. The first is it enriches the church. Listen to Daniel Yang, who wrote for Christianity Today. He said, God hasn't just sent the nations to be reached by the church in North America. God also sent the nations to enrich the church in North America. And that's why we're blessed to have uh, people from different cultures in our church. We are richer because of it. And that's because every people and every culture has blind spots. And I think God intended it that way because it means we need one another. So it enriches the church. The second thing is 
It's a witness to Jesus. Uh, pastor and author Derwin Gray leads a, a large multi-ethnic church in South Carolina. He says from experience, there is a majestic, beautiful power when people of unlikely difference become a community. Because you see, a community like that points people to Jesus. It's a witness to Jesus. Because only Jesus has the power to break down the walls that naturally divide us. You know, whether race or culture, class uh, or gender. You know, only Jesus has the power to unite peoples and cultures who may appear ununitable. A truly multicultural, multi-ethnic church is unexplainable apart from Jesus. And it's a powerful witness, especially in a polarized society like ours. Listen to Cole Brown, who planted a multi-ethnic church in Portland, Oregon. He says, I see multi-ethnic churches as both the New Testament norm and the most powerful evangelistic tool the American church has today. In the United States, there is no more visible and inexplicable unity than unity across racial and cultural divides. A multi-ethnic church is a witness to Jesus. But the third and most important reason is that it's also what God intends. Right? Diversity, it enriches the church. It's a witness to Jesus, but it's also what God intends. It's what the church is supposed to look like. And that's what I want to focus on here this morning. And to better understand that, we need to turn to the Bible and look at how the church first began in the book of Acts. Okay? Now, the book of Acts is really like a book of new beginnings. It's a bit like the book of Genesis in the Bible, where we see uh, the Spirit of God hovering over the, the beginning of creation and giving life to man as the breath of God enters him. And in the book of Acts, we see the Spirit of God forming a new creation as he comes on the day of Pentecost and breathes new life into those disciples, creating a new community on earth. And what's more, he enabled them to speak different languages. Now, they weren't expecting that. When Jesus said, you will receive power, they weren't expecting to receive someone else's language. But you see, it was a sign. It was a sign to them and to all who gathered that this new community that God was forming was to be a richly diverse and global community. That God was opening the doors wide to all peoples to come into his family, the family that we call church. Now, Jesus had already told them the plan that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But if you read the first few chapters of Acts, it's like they didn't really get the message, right? Because we don't really see them going and reaching out to people who were different to them. Or maybe they just weren't too inclined. And I guess deep down, you know, if we're honest, that would be true for us as well. Right? Like those first Jewish converts, we would probably be happier just to stay in the kind of cultural comfort 
of our own home and share the good news with our own kind, people who are like us, people who speak our language, who eat the food we like and share our way of life. Because that, you see, doesn't require a whole lot of sacrifice or change. And that's why we like mono-ethnic churches, right? Because they preserve our way of life, our way of thinking. They feel like home, except this isn't our home, is it? Is it? So how did the gospel come to impact the lives of so many people and reach across so many different cultures? It wasn't because the disciples of Jesus were passionate about reaching out to them. It's because the Spirit of God was. Dr. Willie James Jennings is Associate Professor of Theology at Yale, and he wrote a great commentary on Acts. He says this, The deepest reality of life in the Spirit depicted in the book of Acts is that the disciples of Jesus rarely, if ever, go where they want to go or to whom they want to go. Indeed, the Spirit seems to always be pressing the disciples to go to those to whom they would, in fact, strongly prefer never to share space or a meal and definitely not life together. And yet, it is precisely this prodding to become boundary-crossing and border-transgressing that marks the presence of the Spirit of God. And that was certainly true of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10, when the Spirit of God directed him to go into a Gentile's home, which meant crossing a big cultural barrier, and he was led to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his family, who became the first Gentile or non-Jewish converts. It was a pivotal moment in the history of the church. But actually what happens next in Acts 11 is perhaps even more groundbreaking because it led to the start of the first multicultural church that we read about in the Bible, a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And again, it was the result of God pressing the disciples to go out into the world, right? In fact, it was the result of the first great migration of Christians, which took place because of a severe persecution the stoning of Stephen. So let's read what happened in Acts 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Right? So having been thrust out of their familiar environment, these migrants continued to gravitate to their own kind because that is our natural inclination. And so they only shared Jesus with other Jews. This wasn't a great start for God's mission. In fact, it could have died out right there if this group of believers had just remained a subset of Judaism. But then something historic happened. Theologian Bruce Milne says it was a historic breakthrough as significant as Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon. And when you read the book of Acts, it seems such a small step, and yet it turns out to be a giant leap for mankind. 
Let's read the next verse, verse 20. It says, But, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. So note that, not just the Jews, but to Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, what we have to understand here is that these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, they were Jews. They'd been in Jerusalem, where they would have no doubt heard about Jesus and become converts. But unlike the other Jews who were fleeing the city, they hadn't been born there. They'd been raised in Cyprus and Cyrene. Their families were part of the Jewish diaspora. And these were Hellenistic Jews. They spoke Greek, right? Cyrene was a Greek colony in North Africa. And so when they came to Antioch, which was a very cosmopolitan city, they began speaking to other Hellenists. And the implication here is that these are not Jewish Hellenists. These are Gentile Hellenists, right? Non-Jewish people. And this was huge because there was no greater racial divide at that time than between Jews and Gentiles, right? Jews would normally have nothing to do with Gentiles. And part of that had to do with fear. Fear of assimilation, uh, fear of uh, losing their heritage, their, their culture, their way of life. It's what motivates every nationalist today. The Jewish people were like a boat sailing on this vast sea of Gentiles. And if they let the Gentiles in, it would be like water leaking into the boat and it would threaten to drown their Jewish faith in all that they held sacred. So wherever the Jewish people got dispersed in the world, they would segregate themselves. But these Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene did something very different. They got out of the boat. And it was a giant leap for mankind. Now, I doubt that they understood all the implications of what they were doing. I doubt they had fully grasped what is now clear to us, that God was forming a new people, a new humanity made up of Jews and Gentiles. But I suspect these men of Cyprus and Cyrene were following the Spirit of God. Because as Dr. Jennings said, it's this prodding of the Spirit that causes us to cross boundaries and borders. So let's read on in verse 22. It says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Because this, you see, was major news. And what did they do? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Good old Barnabas. Right? The apostles clearly trusted him. But it was much more than that. Because earlier in Acts, we're told that Barnabas was a Levite and a native of Cyprus. Right? So, like some of these other men in Antioch, he was a Cypriot Jew. He would have spoken the language of both cultures. He understood their different ways of life. So he was exactly the kind of man they needed to send to find out what on earth was going on and to help navigate all the issues that no doubt were arising there. He was like a, a bridge between cultures. And just to say, 
we need more Barnabases in our churches today. Right? People who can bridge cultures. Bilingual people. Immigrants, and particularly second-generation immigrants who can take on a leadership role. Let's read what happened next when Barnabas arrived in Antioch. Verse 23, it says, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exalted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, why was that? What did Barnabas see in Antioch? It says he saw the grace of God and he rejoiced. What was the grace of God he saw? Surely it must be referring to what we just read, that both Jews and Gentiles were coming to faith and worshipping the Lord together. It's what the Apostle Paul later wrote about in Ephesians 3, where he talks about God's intention for his church. Listen to how Terry Virgo put it. Terry says, The church as a reconciled Multiracial humanity is a public demonstration of God's power, grace, and manifold wisdom. That is what Barnabas saw happening in Antioch, and he rejoiced, even though I'm sure he had a lot of work to do. I mean, it must have been very messy, you know, both Jew and Gentile needing to be taught to live the way of Jesus. That meant laying down certain cultural preferences learning to live together as one family. But Barnabas rejoiced and kept exalting them to look to Jesus because, of course, Jesus is the one who unifies us. Because the church was growing, he also went and got help. Right? This needed team leadership because one person cannot pastor the kind of church that Jesus is wanting to build. So Barnabas sent for Saul. Saul was another person who bridged cultures. He'd been a Jewish Pharisee, but also was a Roman citizen from Asia Minor. So Barnabas and Saul, they teamed up together, and they hammered out what this new community should look like. The first church outside of Jerusalem, where for the first time in history, disciples of Jesus became known as Christians, a name that identifies almost a third of the world's population today. It happened first in Antioch. But why? Why were they called Christian? It's a word that means uh, those who belong to Christ. We might say the party of Christ. It wasn't a name they gave themselves. It certainly wasn't a name that Jesus had given them. So where did it come from? We see elsewhere in the book of Acts that early Christ followers were called Nazarenes or the way and they were largely viewed as just a sect, just another sect of Judaism. So is it possible then that what happened in Antioch was so radical, so different, it demanded they be given a new name to identify them? 
You see, Antioch was a very diverse city. I mean, it was a melting pot of cultures, languages, and religions. I've got a map so you can see where Antioch is. Uh, it stands at really at the bottom of uh, modern-day Turkey. In those days, it was at the top of uh, the Roman province of Syria. And it's where the earthquakes took place in Turkey recently, although that tragic earthquake that demolished uh, the city there. That was where the ancient city of Antioch had once stood. And like many ancient cities of the day, Antioch had an outer wall around the city, but it also had a dividing wall. Right? When it was first built, a literal wall was constructed to keep Syrians and Greeks apart. You know, we're often suspicious, aren't we, of people who are different from us because we don't understand them. If things go wrong, much easier to blame those others than look closer to home. That's why it often leads to hostility and prejudice, segregation, to kind of protect our interests, protect our way of life. That's what happened in Antioch. In fact, archaeologists have found evidence that the city may have had at least five different ethnic sectors, right? Greek, Syrian, Jewish, Latin, North African. It must have been like the Five Points neighborhood of New York City in its day. And by the time the first Christ followers came to Antioch in Acts 11, it's believed that at least 18 different ethnic groups were living within the city walls. But as we just read, the first believers who came there shared the gospel of Jesus not just with their own people, but with other people groups as well. They didn't allow these walls or cultural differences to prevent them from reaching out to their neighbors. And that's not all. Because as people from different ethnic groups put their faith in Jesus, you know, it would have been so natural to have just gathered together with their own kind. It could so easily have led to the forming of a Jewish church, a Greek church, a North African church, and so on, like we have in so many of our own cities today. But instead, they did something radically different. They built a multi-ethnic church that tore down those dividing walls and worshipped together as one new family in Christ. How do we know that? You may be sitting there, come on in, how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, according to Bible scholar D.A. Carson, we know because of the diversity of their leadership team. We're given a description of their leaders in Acts 13, verse 1. Let's read what it says. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. There was Barnabas, so these are some of the leaders in the church. There was Barnabas, who we know is a Jewish Cypriot. There was Simeon, who was also called Niger, or Simeon the Black, probably an African. There was Lucius of Cyrene, that was North Africa. There was Manaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, so he was a Palestinian Jew. And then there was Saul, who was from Tarsus in Asia Minor. So D.A. Carson says the leadership was indicative of a very diverse church. And again, that kind of diversity cannot have just happened 
without a lot of intentionality. So what was it then that motivated them to work through the tensions and the issues uh, and to make the necessary sacrifices? Because they didn't have all the scriptures that we have. They didn't have those. No one had built a multi-ethnic church before. So what inspired all this? It can only be the one who breathed new life into the disciples and launched this new movement. They were being led by the Spirit of God. Right? He is the main character throughout the book of Acts, directing God's mission, prodding and leading the disciples to go to people and places they would naturally have no intention of going to. It was the Holy Spirit who empowered them to love one another. It was the Holy Spirit who gave them wisdom to navigate the issues that would have arisen. And when the church leaders were praying in Acts 13, it was the Holy Spirit again who told them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that God had called them to. And what was that work? To take what they'd learned in Antioch and reproduce multi-ethnic churches in city after city across the known world. Because that's exactly what they did, just as God intended. Right? The mark of the Spirit is that they were a diverse church, made up of people from different cultures, nations, different classes and generations, but all one in Christ. And I would suggest if we're following the Spirit, that is what we will look like too, a beautiful, integrated community. Now, imagine the impact on the city of Antioch, because nothing like it had been seen before. As the great theologian uh, René Padilla wrote, Padilla wrote, the impact that the early church made on non-Christians because of Christian brotherhood across natural barriers can hardly be overestimated. You know, one of the great early church fathers was a man called John Chrysostom. Uh, Here's a picture. He was born in Antioch, ministered there for a number of years in the 4th century AD, and uh, before becoming Archbishop of Constantinople, I think he was preaching, he's called the Goldmouth Preacher. I think he was preaching in uh, Antioch for 18 years, and he recorded that in his lifetime, when he was preaching, there were 100,000 Christians in Antioch. 100,000 Christians. That's nearly, uh, or more than, a quarter of the population of the city and explains why Antioch became one of the five centers of Christendom in the ancient world, right? But imagine that, 100,000 people, different nations, cultures, languages, worshiping Jesus as Lord. Imagine the impact that that had. So I want to suggest to you that it was the people of Antioch who gave them this new name because they knew that it was Christ who they worshiped And clearly, Christ was not an ethnic God. He wasn't a national God. He was the God of all nations. And so they called them Christians. The Jesus Party. All right, to conclude, let's uh, wind this down. Now, what about us? What about the church in America today? How can we make an impact on our polarized, divided society? How can we fulfill the gospel mandate that Jesus has given to us Surely, it's as we follow the movement of the Holy Spirit. As we listen for his voice, obey his promptings, because that's what we see happening over and over again in the book of Acts. And it means he will certainly take us outside of our comfort zones, 
and he'll lead us to people and places we may not naturally want to go to. It might mean reaching out to and befriending people we may not understand who are different to us, eating their food, learning their ways, listening to their stories. It might be your neighbors like Mary and Patria. It could be your work colleagues or classmates. Who might the Holy Spirit be leading you to? That's what I want to leave you with. F.A. Ahiowe is Professor of Christian Theology and Ethics at Babcock University in Nigeria. You'll have the last word. He says, When the church recognizes the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers, diversity may indeed provide the tapestry for unity that will enable her to fulfill the gospel mandate. I'm just going to close with this, though. I'll have the last word. I'll close with this. <laughs> what we also need to understand is it means being a part of a church that does not tick all your boxes. Right, where the style of worship or the way we gather may not be 100% to your preference. Because if we're truly wanting to love people of different cultures and ethnicities, it means sacrificing some of my own preferences for the sake of others. It means we all of us have to lay self down at the foot of the cross as we come together to worship Jesus. Because it's not about me. It's about him and it's about us together. This beautiful, multicolored, multi-ethnic, multi-generational body of Christ coming together in harmony and in unity to worship Jesus here on earth as it is and as it will be in heaven. Amen. Amen.